Hello. Welcome to a special edition of Bring It In with me, Gerard Hector, and the boss of True Hoop, Henry Thorpe. Oh, Henry Thorpe. Henry Abbott. Jesus, look at that. I'm so I'm so used to having David here. I'm like, my mind's crazy. How are you, Henry? I'll take it. Henry Thorpe, pretty good. Like, <laughs> my basketball knowledge just got way yeah, I was going to say, you, you just, you know, got, like, you just yeah. got super smart about yeah. basketball. He's a Thorpe now. <laughs> and special guest. The author of Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything Bro, You Knew you, About Basketball, <laughs> Mike Thank Freda. you, Henry. Thank <laughs> you, guys. You, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Henry Thorpe, I guess that refers to the real boss of this site. Oh, yeah, totally. that's totally. the Henry Thorpe. Mm-hmm. 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 It has sort of a Jim Thorpe ring to it. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, is Jim Thorpe the greatest athlete, like, ever? Whoa. Shortlist? I don't even follow that sport. I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Bo, Just Bo Jackson? Bo Jackson, you know, he's, he's up there. He's yeah. Up there. yeah. Um, Steph Curry? Now you're talking. Now you're talking. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, Mike, I just, before we get into anything else, um, can you talk to me about how your family uh, relates or doesn't to the fashion house? Not at all. Oh. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought about lying to you guys about it. I would have enjoyed making that. you have yeah. some co- concocting some backstory, but every time I try to do that, I just stumble. But it is, it's Prada. You're not Prada, right? It's not yeah, Mike that's Prada. Correct. That's okay. correct. Yeah. But surely yeah. that's because like your great uncle had a falling out and changed the <laughs> yeah. and then like right. now you're gonna go back and get all that. Yeah, he was like, We we money. should go we should go into uh automobiles and mechanics. Like we shouldn't go into we shouldn't go into you know fashion lux fashion knew, who who knew <laughs> high-end fashion was a thing that would make That's any right. money yep. at all nah yeah. what a bad idea yeah <laughs> those those dinner parties are so annoying <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, dinner parties are annoying you know I'll, I'll give him that i think he made the right decision <laughs> how terrible to see my stuff on a runway at paris and new york and milan fashion week terrible terrible yeah yeah <laughs> um so my congratulations. Today is the official launch day of your book spaced out is this is the day this is the day yeah i feel Honestly, I was really nervous last night. I don't know. I'm glad it's out. It's awesome. It's really exciting. Yeah. But it, it, there's also like the whole pre-order lead up feels like the launch date, you know? And so today is like obviously really awesome. But like it's been available for pre-order for like five months. Really? But, five months? Yeah. yeah. I don't, You know what? They, they put it out there and they didn't tell me. I found it on Amazon myself. And I was like, so Wait can I like minute. tell people that this is out? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's out. It's out. Yeah. So, no, it's, it's cool. It's crazy. <laughs> I'm glad uh, you were done with it at that point. That's a good <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Barely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, Whenever... right, so, wait, sorry. You go, Gerard. No, no. I, I was just going to, because I know you want to get into the, the at least the beginning of the dedication. So, actually, why don't, why don't we start there? And then I'll. There is like I don't couldn't help but notice a pretty heavy dedication to your dad. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he didn't. Wait, what's the story? So what, tell us about Vince. Yeah, he um, he passed away when I was fifteen in a car accident. Oh, um, huge basketball fan. We used to go to the Bullets games. You know, back at the old Capitol Center USA Arena, we used to have it would just be me and him. I have a brother, and my mom's still obviously here, but that was like kind of our thing. And he was a Celtics fan, uh, mm-hmm. but he didn't. You know, I feel like if he was around today, he might have like made me a Celtics fan. But instead, at, you know, at that time, it was hard to watch the Celtics on TV. So he wanted to kind of take us to the local games. And it was just sort of our experience. And like, you know, when he passed, that was sort of one of the things that I remembered him by. And so honestly, in some ways, like this whole career 
a lot is like I have him in the back of my head somewhere. So, yeah, he just passed 20 years since he he died. He died in a single car accident. He was on the highway. They think he may have had an aneurysm. Um, Super healthy lawyer, but just it was just sort of a crazy, crazy thing that happened. And yeah, I feel like it it just got to 20 years since that happened. So, yeah, I mean, thanks for pointing that out. Like you are the first person to ask about the dedication. So, I mean, I didn't get even like into the first page of the introduction. I'm like, oh my God, something happened here. Just like the way I framed yeah. it, but it was, I was like, it wasn't a regular, like for dad kind of thing. It was like, no, something, no, something yeah. happened here. Yeah. For Vincent Breda, who introduced me to this amazing sport, among many other things, I miss you every day. RIP. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. That's the first page. It's kind of hard to, well, right? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Unless no, you just get... not live anymore. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm a very careful reader. Uh, unless mm. you get books, yeah. and like a, a lot of people, you just skip all that prologue and you get right to chapter one, which is what I imagine a lot of people do. So they don't, yeah. they, they, they miss all that stuff in the beginning. Um, so, on the one hand, Mike, this is, you know, this is a, a connection to your dad, right? Uh, I don't want to mm-hmm. say like, uh, a letter to your dad, but like you're communicating with your dad, the spirit of your dad. It's what clearly one piece of it. But whenever you mm-hmm. create a book or a documentary or anything, it's also part ideology, right? I mean, that's just that's all just, ideology, right? That's, a, that's, yeah. that's what you do. So when you started out to do this, uh, separate from the dad part, what is this ideology of yours as it relates to basketball that you were trying to get out there? Yeah, you know, so in a funny story, like they actually pitched to me kind of just sort of a here's how you watch basketball, like a smart person book and the more i thought about that the more i was like i mean i'm just some guy like i i could find people who could tell you how to watch it but to me i thought there was something really important happening with the league and we talk about it in terms of three pointers you know it's been covered all the time you know i first really noticed it maybe a few years ago and it just sort of was sticking in my head like it's not just that the three pointers happen it's sort of what the effect of that are and it occurred to me that like the court literally was doubling in where what we, what players were using you know it was it was here for like 60 years maybe like kind of slowly like kind of coming out and then all of a sudden like because they're shooting all these threes now it's out here and to me i just thought it was like so under misunderstood like what that was doing to the sport you know when you double the surface and you keep the same number of players there you know why would we why would it be the same sport it's just not no, I know the rules are the same, but like the way you get there is totally different. And I just think it's one of those things that like so many people who talk about the sport are used to as basketball. That's not that. And I just felt like it was time to kind of reset. And that's kind of where the genesis of the idea came from. And then I kind of wanted to split it up into sort of like kind of big picture. Like, what does this mean for these big questions like superstars, like uh, positions, all of that? how we got there and then like kind of what it means for the tactics of the game, the pick and roll, the pick and roll defense, some of the more X's and O's heavy stuff. But then the last piece that I thought was really important that hadn't been covered is what does it mean for the players skill sets? You know, what do they have to do? And I I knew in my head, I wanted to structure it that way. And just after that, it was kind of a matter of, I could have gone down 700 different rabbit holes and I had to really focus myself because I mean, you could write like 10 books about each chapter could be its own book. You know, that's the thing that's crazy about it. But no, the idea really was just, I think we're talking about the sport all wrong in a lot of ways. And I just sort of wanted to help fix that, you know, as someone who appreciates the modern game. And I just don't think people are thinking, we're thinking about it in the terms that need to be thought about. So that was really the the motivation. And 
yeah, it's really hard when you're trying to write like kind of a big idea like that to not think like, what the hell am I thinking? You know, and that was kind of the hardest part. But hopefully, the end result is the end result. It's great. I am okay. Page three. This I've never seen this before. This blew my mind. Uh, Jerry Colangelo. I'm looking at this. There you go. Look at look at you. You can look up and I'm going to talk about your Uh, book. Yes, 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 yes. I see. I know what you're talking about now. This is so, so 1979. Three pointers are first coming into the rule book, and Jerry Colangelo says to the AP. I'm just, I wish I could do his voice. I'm convinced of one thing. <laughs> it will not change the game. As a Aww. purist, I want to see the game left alone, but under the circumstances, we need to take a look at this for one year, but the basic structure of the game will not change at all, and that's the important thing. Yeah. I mean, isn't <laughs> that amazing? dumb shit! Now, in fairness, he was right for about 35 years. (laughs) But isn't that amazing that this thing that comes in the league, you know, is this thing that they they say they need to save the sport in a lot of ways because popularity was going. And then as soon as it comes in, it's like the people who brought it in are like, no, 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 this isn't actually a big deal anymore. Like, calm down. Like, I think that explains so much of why it took so long. Don't you think? Oh, my gosh. Big time. There's a. Um, Tom Haverstroh wrote a story about those 35 years you're talking about. And mm-hmm. there's a Pat, I mean, there are a bunch of coaches in there being basically like, we just didn't want to use this tool. And the one I remember was Pat Rowley being like, like, you know, that was a gimmick from the ABA. Yeah. And we didn't play that way. We had a style where we just rammed it down your throat and that's just what we did. And like, it, it is just the epitome of macho, like just. I'm not, you know, this is the way we've always done it. I don't want to think about anything else kind of thing, right? Like, it just seems yeah. like. It's, just, no. it's also about relevance, right? Like, when something new comes in, it's something that you don't do, and you are the NBA, and you're like, no, we're the right league, and we're the better league. If I have to start incorporating this three-point thing, well, that makes me, who doesn't do this, less important, right? It's like, well, Absolutely. I, Absolutely. I, don't, I don't know how to do this thing. So, and I don't want to, and it's, it's true of every walk of life, right? Anything new comes along, if you don't know about it, there's a level of trepidation and fear because it's like talking about your own mortality and obsolescence in that thing. Right. And so that also freaks people out. Also the NBA won. The ABA is gone. (laughs) I think that's the part that I think is underrated is like, it's not just like, this is a thing from another league, but like, this is a league that we squashed like a bug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We outlasted those, you know, infidels from the ABA. And now we're taking their thing (laughs) and putting in our league. Yeah. You know, I think that that was a huge part of it, I think. And I, have you guys have heard of the paradox of expertise? Is this the one? Well, no, I'm not going to guess. This <laughs> <laughs> idea that the people who are worst at, at knowing the future of how something is going to go are the people who are the best at doing it in the moment. Like, basically, experts are terrible prognosticators mm. because all they can think through is, like, yeah. what through their own lens. Yeah. This so is like Michael always, Jordan thinking he can make Kwame Brown a star, like that kind of thing. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> well, in fairness, why are so many executives and coaches not star players? Yeah, yeah, it's the same they idea. Grind it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know. So yeah. I think that that's a very obvious in this case. You know, the NBA is the experts. Also, the people who are sort of saying this is bad are like Red Auerbach, Jack Ramsey, uh, Larry you know, these luminaries, the great be- coaches of all time. Yeah. Right. So it, like. It'd be as if, like, kind of some like we were to say that, like, all journalism, like, other journalists are not doing the right thing because people listen to us. I mean, 
that they listen to you at least. <laughs> you know, it'd be like we're the tastemakers. They were the tastemakers, you know. And yeah. so why would anybody listen to them? So I, I mean, I just think that that's. I mean, there was an owner who like quit the board of governors because yes. they passed this vote. It's just so amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And it was Wild. the Warriors owner well, of that, all people. That part yeah. is like just that's so ironic. Here. Yeah. yeah. There's a great, um, to that point, um, my first reference was to page three and my second reference is to page four. Um, but Eddie Gottlieb, Philadelphia Warriors coach, what is it but an admission that you are dealing with inferior players who can't do anything but throw up long shots? You encourage mediocrity when you give extra credit to this sort of thing. There's a line that he didn't include, so that I didn't include in there, that, that was like a continuation of that line. It was like, well, if someone does like a twisting, spinning layup through five defenders, should that be worth six points? Yes, probably. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> that. I mean... It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of funny though. Imagine like there were like a bunch of sensors on the court that like determined your shot is worth two point three nine eight points if it's from here. Like that does sort of illustrate how arbitrary this line is, right? Yeah. Or like figure skating or gymnastics judges hold up the cars in right. the basket. It's like oh crap. yeah. So I I think that was like a huge point that like kind of it took just people for seventy what it was a seventy nine so almost. Mm-hmm. 80, 90 years, every basket was worth two points. And now you're saying just because it's from out here, it's worth three? That's weird. Yeah. I hear this, though. Like, um, like I hear Eddie Gottlieb sounding obsolete, worried about being obsolete, to Gerard's point, right? Like, an admission that you are dealing with inferior players and can't do anything but throw up long shots. To me, like, Eddie Gottlieb's brain is supposed to be the one that gets you a better shot than that, right? Mm-hmm. And like, right. And just yes, like, ah, I, mean, I, I suck if we're doing that, right? Basically what saying, right? Yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, it, the, the other element of this that I think is throughout the book is just control versus chaos. I think to make this revolution happen, people had to, coaches in particular, had to accept like relinquishing some control, yeah, yeah, you know, and that was, I think, really hard for them, yeah. Well, you, you know, I mean, clearly, it, I mean, even if you want to fast forward it to modern times, right? And he's gotten better with it, but those first few years when Steve Kerr was coaching the Warriors, it was chaotic to him, right? Mm-hmm. He would see Steph do something and be like, what the? F-? But the shot would go in, he'd be like, and now he's like, okay, fine. I don't, now yeah. he's, he's totally calm with it. But those first couple of years, he was like, what are you doing? And that's, yeah. and he was the one who was like, no, this is what I think we can do. Let's push this thing forward. His old basketball brain had to be, you know, moved through the, through the process of like, right. no, this is okay. It can happen. <laughs> right. And, and he, there's still a piece of that with him. You know, mm-hmm. he hasn't lost it entirely. <laughs> I mean, in, in some ways, like the reason Steve Kerr is such a seminal figure is that he knew how to tamp that part of his brain down better than other people. It's not very weird. I mean, Warriors fans still complain that he's not modern enough. So, <laughs> like, you know, it, it, it's hard. And I, I think that that's a that's a huge factor, though, that that's why I think, you know, people have asked me, like, who's the most important person in this story? It's Steph Curry. It's not I mean, Curry is obviously very important, but it is Steph Curry without that skill set. You know, does this all of this happen? Probably not. I'm a little bit obsessed with the moment that he won that game in Oklahoma City like a dribble over half court mm-hmm. basically with, I think it was like six or seven seconds on the clock. And, um, and now Jeff Van Gundy was calling the game. Like, and, like, and there's just a moment, like he takes like an open shot to win the game and you can hear that. Like, 
Like, oh, you got to guard him. It's like, no, man, not for the first hundred years of this game. I'm not <laughs> right, there. Exactly. Like, it's, not, it's a non-basketball, to your point about the square footage of this thing, right? Like, this is not part of the playable court until this motherfucker comes Yeah. Like, <laughs> you may as well have had, like, two halves, uh, two quarters, like, kind of the court, and then the middle was just literally, like, the highway that you advanced yeah. past to get there. I mean, it's just, it, it, it really is wild. I mean, if you watch an old game, like, just take a picture of the spatial alignment it's yeah. it's kind of insane i have a framed picture over there of the uh 1977 blazers like someone gave it to me as a gift and like and, and there's 10 10 players have a foot touching the paint like, amazing yeah, yeah it's yeah. ridiculous it's yeah. and that, now you see also i mean the other thing about that chapter is i think his name is howard hobson this right. former oregon coach who i think is widely credited as the first to try a three-point line in a scrimmage back in the 40s. He writes a letter to Larry O'Brien essentially saying, you know why we have like people punching each other in games like Kermit Washington and you know why we have all this roughhousing is because they're playing on they're playing in a phone booth. So yeah. the only way to fix that is we've got to create an incentive to get them out of the paint. And eventually they listen, but that I mean people kind of knew this back in the day. You know, and it's just, it is kind of funny to your point, though, like kind of, the Blazers are seen as this like beautiful basketball team. And there's just, it's harder to do stuff in this much space versus that much space. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So it's, tw- is, that, is it right that it's 12,280 feet is the square feet? I did like, so it's what, 94 by 50 mm-hmm. by 10, but I think mm-hmm. I might have added like five feet to the top of the backboard. So that's, I think that's kind of how I got that number. So you kind of like, uh, well, Talk me through how the square footage has changed. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, if you imagine, like, everybody standing within, like, on top of the three-point line is the furthest, like, anyone stood. And, by the way, probably only one or two people there, you know? Mm -hmm. If you think about it, right, your your three-point line is Mm 23-9. So you're basically playing on 24 by 50 by, I don't know, whatever you want to call the, the, you know, vertical. Mm -hmm. But now, because players shoot the ball from 35 feet, it's not just that they shoot from out there. They also stand way out there. And, and they set screens out there. And all they kinds set of screens out there, there. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And what, what's actually happening now, which is kind of amazing to me, is that like the fast break and the half-court set are just basically the same now. When you get a rebound, you, you're essentially running like kind of an action over 90 feet. Mm-hmm. So you could argue that it's even wider than that. So what you add, we go from like 24 feet to like 40 feet on one end. I mean, that just completely changes the square footage so Mm -hmm. it's like an exponential change so in a weird way it was kind of oddly a simple calculation you know basically Mm -hmm. just extending the court by this much so without adding more players to fill it that's the whole thing about the book is like i feel like this point is almost too simple for people to say not to give myself too much credit or whatever but it's like yeah it's it's bigger the court's bigger (laughs) it's a bigger surface you know Playing Imagine on, on, playing. My original lead uh, intro was a capture the flag analogy, and I said, "What if you oh, just double the, the flag?" <laughs> 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 We're it learning was a so little... much, Henry. <laughs> I love it. It's a great game. <laughs> I, it was a little too involved, and my editor was like, "I don't know if this totally works." But it was like, imagine if, like, kind of one send day... it over, Mike. What you want to see that? Yeah, <laughs> it's not too involved. For Henry's true. like, "We'll work that into something." <laughs> Let me <laughs> tell you. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's kind of what it is. You, you know, so you mentioned, you know, of course, that the title of the book is called Spaced Out, right? Like, and we're talking about offense right now, but the space is clearly also changed the other side of the floor, right? Mm-hmm. How do we guard these people and these actions? You mentioned no need. 
no need. <laughs> no need. You mentioned on a, on, a, on a rebound, you're starting to run action literally maybe not at the at the half court mark, but maybe right just inside of it, you're starting to run action, right? Yeah. And I would argue that like just the act of a wing spreading all the way to the corner after a miss is like its own form of offense. It is. You know, um, and you know how like Chris Paul does that thing now where like he'll just like cut in front of the big guy so that he can't run back in front of him. He's essentially creating a pick and roll in the open floor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, you're asking about Divas. Yeah, it's a, mm-hmm. great, it's a great question. How do we do? What the hell are we supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, here's the way I would I would put it. It's like we talk about how it's impossible to defend now. What if, like, kind of, it's instead that we have defenses been let it let off the hook for seventy years, right? This is what the normal should be. I mean, the court is this big, right? You know, it wasn't necessarily meant to be this little, but I think the biggest—it's been a huge challenge, I think, for just defenses and both individually and as a team to kind of reckon with the two hot spots of the court are thirty-five feet and and one foot. Mm-hmm. Like how do we actually cover both of those? And I think only now are you starting to see some interesting methodologies that are kind of described in chapter 12. I don't know if you guys have gotten that far, but just combined with sort of there's a rise in zone. So mm-hmm. that's been interesting that I think even the non-zone schemes, you know, teams are positioning players more to at the nail area, mm-hmm. kind of more aggressively. Uh, different forms of pick and roll coverage, the low man rotation. There's a lot more like kind of in and out and in and out and all this uh, happening to cover those spaces. I think, I think you're seeing that evolve too, though, right? Like Mm -hmm. how the three point shot evolved. So, so many teams, I think now what we're seeing is I'm selling out to take away one of those things, either Mm -hmm. the closest shot to the rim. You're not getting that or you're not getting the threes. Right. But the smart teams are starting to hybrid up. no, we can take away both if we're smart about how we rotate and how we scheme and where we plant. I mean, look, the other piece about this, as you mentioned, Curry's the most important figure in this book on the defensive side of it. The other important piece is, well, you need the talent to be able to do it, right? Like, yeah, no, it's <laughs> right. And I think you're seeing also like perimeter players are just getting longer and longer and longer mm-hmm. and longer. I look at a guy like Herb Jones in New Orleans. Mm. where He's a great, he's a really good man defender, but honestly that kind of misses what his primary role is. What his primary role is one, if someone kind of swings the ball the other side and tries to drive the middle, he's able to just sort of get to the nail and like stick his arms out and deter that. And if you drive and get past that first line defense, he flies, his closeouts cover more mm-hmm. ground and practicality because mm-hmm. of his length. I think you're seeing more players like that around the league. Without question. And, and this hasn't happened yet. And we'll be curious to see what the, you know, all things being equal, this person's healthy and very good. What a player like Victor Wembenyama oh can God. do defensively to this space, right? Because he in and of himself takes up a ton of space, right? right. Um, and with that seven foot four, frame which is probably an eight foot wingspan that is giving that that's taking away space right yeah we would be talking about chet holmgren right now well correct if he was right if he were healthy yeah absolutely i mean then there's the the other sort of uncomfortable question that kind of ties into that is can these guys actually their legs hold up with Mm -hmm. that sort of frame and Mm -hmm. i think that there's a lot of interesting stuff happening to sort of change the body types of players i mean I didn't really get into this too much in the book because it's just such a rabbit hole topic that I think one of the two of you is doing something on. <laughs> um, Hang tight, everybody. <laughs> coming on that. See, yeah. that's a tease. Uh, yeah. But just like the core exercises is that 
players back in the 90s before like kind of the last 10 years were really top heavy i mean he's look at patrick ewing he's like broad shoulders michael cage michael mm-hmm. cage yeah uh, i mean because that was what it carl made malone. sense <laughs> carl malone that made sense in a game that was like in a phone booth but mm-hmm. when you're spread out like now it's like kind of how fast do you move on your feet and uh, there's a great story that i edited that seert zoe wrote for sb nation five years ago one of my favorite still my favorite story we've ever worked on which was about how like anthony davis and mitchell robinson and marvin bagley are basically like having to retrain like guards to kind of measure up and how challenging that was for them to wrap their heads around it and you see i mean anthony davis like that's a guy whose body hasn't held up to this chris sasporzing is kind of a cautionary tale in that regard even though he's healthy now i mean Five years ago, he was supposed to be the future, and he had all the bona fides, but it turns out his body couldn't do it or can't do it to the same degree. And, I mean, that's the question with Wembenyama and really all these mm-hmm. guys is, you know, there's a certain, like, specific combination of, like, size and, like, core strength. Well, you have you- a, it's a number of pages that delve into the magic of hips, mm-hmm. which is, like, this is, the, like, there's a... <laughs> There's a great little um, story I heard. So P3 in Atlanta um, has a deal with Georgia Tech, and the Georgia Tech people get assessed four times a year, and then they and there's a guy, um, wonderful guy who like goes between. He like comes with you to P3. He works for P3, mm-hmm. and then he goes on the court to practice. And um, and basically what it comes down to is like there are different ways as you go into great detail in this book about you're gonna how you're gonna guard the pick and roll, and the big's gonna like basically challenge himself to be limble in space or not right and right <laughs> and basically like from the assessment they're like you know that this team is in the habit of saying we'd like to have the big push up against this defender or whatever but meanwhile my guy from p3 is like not that guy like, <laughs> I, like, I know his hips i know exactly right. how he moves laterally he's getting roasted out there right yeah but this other guy can like and a lot of it comes down you know there's like this you know we've all they do it i think at the um combine this like a basically a lateral explosion test right mm-hmm. um like p3 would take a dump a little bit on the way they do it with the combine but they do it in the p3 gym in a way that p3 thinks is pretty good um but they kind of know like right and left how you explode and like you know Draymond green's pretty mm-hmm. good at that i'm guessing and uh yeah you know patrick ewing not, not so, so much right not so <laughs> now much. he's like stuck out there right we see it you can see it all the time right like yeah i mean in some ways players are have to act like football defensive backs make yeah. that comparison yeah. in chapter 12 as well where it's mm-hmm. like i mean everybody's like how am i supposed to move while also keeping my hands up and i sort of roll my eyes at that because like how do you think football players do it over like a much bigger surface I mean, yeah. okay and, and by the way the guys they're covering don't have to dribble right. so they can actually move faster mm-hmm. uh and it's all flip hips turning hips you know some sliding some turn and running and i I think to your point about defense like that was something that was really hard and i think we're still just starting to wrap our heads around like hey maybe like kind of stepping and sliding and always being low and all that maybe that doesn't make sense anymore i think it it took a long there was a period from like when harden was at his heyday where his his whole game was just exploiting how slow defenders were (laughs) to adapt to the new space they had i mean that was if you ask, I mean, one reason he's struggled the last couple of years, I guess he's having a pretty good season now or can't drive. One reason is age. I it's think not that's, last. Yeah. I think that's, <laughs> yeah. Now the James Harden slander portion of the show. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's me. That's Henry. That wasn't anybody else on the podcast. Okay. Saying that I don't disagree. <laughs> the other reason is because they've all caught up to him. Like his, I mean, his hack is over. 
or is is ending. So I mean, so and we, the Ripthrough's gone now too, right? Well, like, and, and also yeah. it, it, speaking of P three and all the right, one of the things that we learned about James and Luca has this and mm-hmm. um, what their superpower is, right? Because the NBA is full of people with superpowers. James's superpower is his ability to decelerate to was stop. off the charts better mm-hmm. than anyone in the NBA. When you saw the chart, it was him and Luca like way up here. And then mm-hmm. a gap, and then everybody else. Well, that yep. ability to do that is not as great as it once was, right? So that's a huge also part of his inability to, you know, Absolutely. Do what he does. I mean, that point, um, I have a whole chapter on just how players move with the ball now and how, you know, everybody's kind the of the Horton Tucker thing. The Horton, that's actually, no, that's a different <laughs> okay. chapter, but okay. Horton okay. Tucker is the passing one. This is sort yeah. of the, um, uh, Giannis to the Eurostep yeah. dribbling uh, his footwork. Dribbling his footwork, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. The uh, the Allen Iverson to um, to today sort of legacy, and you know everybody complains that players travel all the time. Uh, yeah. What they're missing is that these steps that they are covering a lot of ground with are just one step or two steps. But what's happening is in a really small contained space, your ability to your first step is really important because there's not much more left to go. Right. You're kind of it, it's like trench warfare. So for the longest time, basketball was like, yo, who has the best first step? Michael Jordan has the best first step. You know, that's what athleticism is. And guys like Harden and Luca came along. Both were considered unathletic, Luca in particular. What they're missing is that when you spread the court out, now every move is a multi-step move. And so your first step doesn't matter as much as kind of your ability to kind of change speeds within your drive or to stop or how I mean. I would argue that Luka Doncic is one of the most athletic players in NBA history. That sounds really strange, right? Right. Say more. Say more. Yeah. The new definition more. of athleticism. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of balance on the move and like kind of core stability and you know the way that kind of goes up and down his body and his ability to stop, but also his ability to kind of like change speeds slowly and sure. And his ability to manipulate different body parts at different times, this disassociation, I think is the classic term. I would argue he's like one of the best athletes in the NBA. Yeah. Maybe of all time, but it's just, it's not like jumping and dunking. Right. And it's, sort not, of, it's not that kind of athleticism. Right. It's like in a way that you can do hungover. <laughs> Henry, he, you're really he always look a little hungover. Come on, he you're, always you're, looks you're, a little. You're dropping like... all the gems in here, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's hope for everybody yet. Totally. <laughs> like, I could go to my pickup game yeah. looking like that. But, <laughs> yeah, this is this is Luka Doncic's superpower. He appears yeah. hungover and makes you yes. think you can do yes. what he does. That's his superpower. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, I mean that. Marvin Bagley got drafted one pick before him. I mean, because of athleticism. Like how, if you really think yeah. about it, how silly is that? Yeah. What good is your athleticism if you like get knocked off your path while moving? So th- th- this is the, but this is the crux of the book, right? At least that first part, the 30 years it took for everybody to be like, oh no, actually this is a good idea. Well, right. this is the other piece of it. The, the changing of, and you know, as, and it's about, we say this all the time, Henry, smart teams, right? Smart teams will eventually be the ones that jump on this curve early and they figure everything out or start to figure it out. And the teams that have your old stage tried and true, as long as that we do things, they're going to be behind the curve and not win a bunch of games. And you're going to draft the guy who can jump really high, but he sucks at everything else. <laughs> you know? well, like, a cool little anecdote about um, 
the sun's kind of sneakily planned for the hand check rules before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to game. give credit to the ringer on that. Yeah. One. That was, yeah. They, they got that nugget, but yeah, no, it's, it's funny. I mean, the, the I, I keep thinking, you know what line like kind of stood out to me as I was writing this book uh, from Jack McCallum, Seven Seconds or Less. He had this great line that I think I included that like kind of really informed a lot of this part of the book for me. The central dichotomy of the NBA's fastest offense is as quarterback by somebody who's not all that fast. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. How does that happen? Oh, it made you sort of rethink like what speed does and how to go fast. And I just, I love that line. And I kept thinking about that line as I wrote this book. Yeah. Okay. So Thorpe, who probably should be here, um, but we didn't invite him. <laughs> so that's why he's not here. Um, he, uh, You're letting all the secrets he, out, Henry. I, no, I've got a lot more secrets. Don't worry. Uh, but uh, um, his thing is like, uh, you know, uh, pros read the game, right? Mm-hmm. Like amateurs play the game, read the game. And like, I think that, that part of your book really gets me thinking about like, you know, Steve Nash reads the game, right? He's, he's pinpointing. Okay. Then you get, now this is where we're going to take this right off the rails, which is this Kelman and Kaiser. Oh God. I knew you guys would <laughs> love it. this. So this is a, uh, this is chapter, the Taylor and Horton Tucker chapter. Yep. Oh yeah. God. This chapter took me forever to write. Yeah. I hope yeah, I take the rest it. of the show just to, to narrate. That <laughs> so it occurred, <laughs> it occurs to me. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. Like I just watching old games, like there are a lot more no look passes now. Like, remember, like, that great highlight of magic going down the court and, mm-hmm. like, kind of going like this and how cool that was? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch a normal game, there are, like, 30 of those every yeah. game. You just have to – I mean, you have to look for them. But, yeah. like – and so I was like, wait a minute. Like, why is everybody – I did a piece a while back on John Wall and how his ability to, to jump and kind of – he would use the cardinal sin of a jump pass to manipulate defenders. Uh and I just kind of thought, like, how is it possible that these guys cannot look and know exactly where to pass now? And it just took me down this this super crazy rabbit hole of what does it mean to see things? You know, mm-hmm. how do we perceive what's in our environment? Um, God, I remember there's so many nights where I was just like looking at study after study. And I, my wife was like, please come to bed. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> um, and he just like, how do we notice what's in our environment? You know, how do we see what we see? I mean, vision is very much a social, like, a individual construct. So the question sort of for me is, like, when do they see that open teammate? And then if they see that open teammate, how do they make it so that everybody else who's kind of got this cued vision to see these patterns, how does how do they manipulate those people? And that's kind of – it took me to that study. Uh, Philip Kelman is uh, – where was he a professor? I don't remember. But he um, – in 1994, he had a he was a aspiring sort of pilot, and he would kind of go up in the air, and he would get so frustrated because his instructors would just be like, "Wait, why can't you see this? Like, do this, do this." And they'd be able to do things that he just like could not process. He literally could not see what they were seeing, and he worked really hard, and he just could not see it. And he designed a study. It kind of occurred to him, they see like sort of combinations of stuff in their vision that other people can't. So he's like, well, what if we could like kind of engineer that? Uh, what if we could kind of figure out a way for people to kind of evaluate almost like the spatial dimensions of the board rather than each individual board itself. So he, he did this thing where he kind of took some novice pilots, students, some experts, he trained them to kind of read the seven dials or the eight dials. I forget exactly how many there were. I think it was eight or seven as a combination of different combinations of what the dials were meant specific things. I think there was like 
seven or eight different like kind of action points from the combination of dials. So instead of teaching them what each individual one meant, he said the sum of all eight of them means this. And then he ran them through a test and he found that after going through an extensive kind of what he called perceptual learning, all the people all the, the the people who had no flight experience did just as well as the experts before they did this study. So in other words, just doing like an hour immersive of like this board study got people to the level of the pilots having done traditional methods before this. Now, obviously you didn't fly the plane. You can't really test that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is that like, if we sort of evaluate kind of teach people to engage and see all the things in the environment as like kind of in relation to each other and that the sum of that means something, then we can kind of bridge the gap between sort of theory and practice. That yes, this is chunking, chunking is right. the word here, right? Yeah. And that's kind of in basketball when you think about the way the game is A, spread out, which means you can actually see more of the court, and B, that's become less of a one-on-one game and it's much more of a you're reading pick-and-roll coverages or you're, you're reading three players uh, ahead or whatever. Essentially, and, and then you combine that with just players watch a lot of film now compared to you know 1972 right like we have more there's just more of like kind of this they're essentially engaging in their own form of a perceptual learning model is what they call it so Mm -hmm. it's like players now automatically know the contextual relationships between players on a level that they never did ever before and that means that everyone is a is, is a better passer than ever before because like the tools are there for them so guys like Taylor and Horton Tucker, I, I have this pass in there. That like, I don't think There's anybody remembers. There, yeah, that's the other I thing. I bet Taylor and Horton Tucker remembers it. <laughs> Taylor and Horton Tucker probably remembers it. Uh, I don't even know if Lakers fans remember this pass. Like, it's, so, it's just like, where? how the hell do you learn how to do that? And he's like 21. He's throwing a pass that like 20 years ago, LeBron, if LeBron did that, it would have been like, holy shit. Yeah. Uh, so that's how. It's because every player naturally – contextualizes the court now as a between as a relationship between nine other players rather than a one-on-one because of the way the game is and once you do that then just all this manipulation comes into focus um and yeah i get very deep into vision studies yeah those there's the graphic um, um, great, great, great for you watching the video of this. Yeah, um, <laughs> bad, bad for you. <laughs> but basically, he like, as I recall, like he jumps and uses his eyes to like fake the de- defense into the wrong place, and everybody mm-hmm. thinks the ball's going to the corner, but instead he finds a wide open three point shooter. Yeah, and, like all in just like you know, I yeah, can't he do couldn't anything in that amount of time, and he couldn't <laughs> see. Yeah, he couldn't see the guy he was passing to. Like, there's like kind of this. There are three nicks like this, and he's on the baseline. He's going like, yeah. but when you think about it, like there are passes like that every single game. And so, and our, what I take, what I hear you saying here is like our, our brains, their brains, NBA players' brains are like supercomputers that like now are exposed to the right factors, right? There's like this, yeah. you know, it used to be a lot. I feel like, a, I feel like a lot of um, my time covering the league, it's been this little tension between like, you know, some players see the variables as like, how do I get from where I am to me with the ball at the hoop? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm, right. And that's what Allen Iverson did. Right. And, uh, and maybe he'd pass it once in a while, but once he got like the whole defense to collapse or so that that's like a, that's a two, three variable thing. But now it's like, no, the good players now are Steve Nash style reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I would amend that slightly to say that in a world where everybody's smushed together, the variables to read are much closer together and different. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, when Michael Jordan is posting up on the left block, like his variables are like kind of where is the hand check on the back, you know, where is the guy's foot position? That's still a very big one. It's much more cl- closely contained. Now, though, the variables are much wider. So in part because literally it's easier to see things when they're spread out. Like there's actual studies that sort of it's kind of a no duh thought. But, you know, I mean, imagine you're look. I, I make the analogy. You're looking at your laptop. If there's a lot of clutter around your laptop. You're not going to see like the pen to your right that's in your peripheral. Can you see my desk right now? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I would say that it's because the game is wider, the passing and vision element of how the players contextualize these relationships is A, more important, and B, like it's easier to spot for them to spot. It's easier for Taylor Horton Tucker to sense that he has a shooter in the corner, Mm -hmm. a shooter on the wing. And he's got a help defender that he can manipulate without even having to see them. So it's it's sort of taught everybody has got to have a wider lens of the sport now than they mm-hmm. ever had to, I would say. And that has allowed everybody to be a better passer um, mm-hmm. than they were before. So I don't want to suggest I mean, like there, it's sort of a different type of intelligence. But I, I agree with you that like players are probably smarter now just because of exposure to information. But it's I would say it's different more so mm-hmm. than they are. They're different tools rather than better tools. Suppose like they're looking at the eight dials, right? You right. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, which maybe some of a different mix of them will be good at that, I would presume than. Right. Right. But at least when you're, once you, it seems like if you're training pilots, having everyone look at all eight dials is a better training method. Um, at the same time. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. to be clear, like obviously right. it's more so like kind of, let, what are the eight dials? We're we're almost skipping the theory stage and going right to that practice. Yeah. That's kind of the idea. And this method has been used on a lot of different um, subjects. And it, to be clear, it hasn't specifically been used on basketball, but to me it was just such an obvious parallel to what is happening that I just thought it was really interesting to include. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things too, Mike, is that it's, at least it seems sort of intuitive, is that space, while it allows the game to be played more fluid and potentially with more pace it gives you time in a right? weird way it does it, yeah in a, because yeah. as you mentioned if you're doing the analogy of everything being cluttered to me if i see clutter i see no time because there's just all this right. shit in my face right? right like yeah yeah how can you see everything i mean that right. that's like there's like a very fancy academic word for that called crowding which is just <laughs> yeah it's pretty simple to me um but yeah i, think no, I get that one <laughs> yeah. uh, but think about it too like how slow it's not even just the the game itself is slower up and down but just like each half court possession was so much slower back in the day because you had to like really be precise about where to throw the ball and where to to see them you know now it, plays move like bam 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 between i mean i think that's another huge factor and again this could have been a whole book honestly this part of it but you know it, i just thought it was it, it was one of those chapters that i started with one idea and ended somewhere very different than what i thought it was going to go the, the part where you're up late and your wife's like i think you're losing it a little bit and you're talking about perception being an individual thing like you know that's where it gets really interesting. <laughs> That's where, like, 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 ooh, the pandemic hit my card. <laughs> like, a little weird. Yeah. 
I'm yeah. perceiving that I'm in the bed now. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> All right. The book is called spaced out. Mike, it's really a tremendous, effort. I mean, just great job. Like, I feel like this is like a you. hugely important thing that we've been missing. Everyone's like, Oh, it's worth one more point. It's like, no, there's a whole downstream. Right. Thing Absolutely. Just, yeah. Way more than that. Yeah. It's, it's worth thing. one more point. <laughs> Thank you for yeah. explaining that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, Hey, thanks you guys for having me. I mean, there's so much that, you guys have done over the years to help inform the book um pretty sure you're cited your end notes henry are pretty long i um well thank you for citing <laughs> your hoop in the notes yeah mm. i noticed the thorpe reference too thorpe's in there uh, well, yeah yeah thorpe is in there yeah, yeah. The henry thorpe <laughs> see that that's yeah we, 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 we've yeah. come full, <laughs> yeah. we've come full circle uh, mike again congratulations on uh the book again people spaced out how the nba's three-point revolution changed everything you know or you knew, excuse me, about basketball. It is available, I'm sure, on Amazon and all the places that you buy books. Mm-hmm. And yeah, starting today. Starting today. All right, congratulations again, done, Mike. Th- thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, I'm Mike Prada course. and Henry Abbott. I'm Gerard Hector. Thank you for tuning in. We will see you guys next time. Take care.